So Birio Kart is where you play Mario Kart, but you can't cross the finish line until you drink your beer. So you start the game with like a full can of typically light, refreshing beer, something that is easily to get down quickly. And then you have to drink all of it before you can pass the finish line. I'm so not good at this game. It's a me, Birio. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Carey. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey, Chris, how's it going today? It is going well. Uh, We got a bunch of feedback related to, as we're recording, the most recent episode that came out where I shared my harebrained scheme in the session of Good Idea, Terrible Idea. And the summary is it was a good idea with a terrible implementation, but a number of kind folks in the audience reached out and offered a different solution. So I was recording right after just first playing around with these ideas. I ended up going in a different direction, uh, which was interesting because there were at this count, I think there's like six or seven people that have reached out suggesting alternative approaches. And almost everyone was suggesting the same thing, which is basically create a read only database user a Postgres user, and then swap out the connection credentials in the Rails environment and run with that. And that is what I ended up doing, and it worked out great. Uh, There was a little bit extra. I did some like logical switching if this environment variable is present. Use that one for the connection string. Otherwise, fall back to the normal database URL. I also had to introduce a special error handler for when I'm in that mode, but otherwise it worked fantastically. There were no real edge cases like there were with all of the other versions that I was talking about. But yeah, it was really interesting to get all of that feedback from folks. And it makes me wonder because we've we've not received that much feedback on another segment previously. Some like, oh, I agree, or here's this other thing you should read. But this was an example of people being like, you should do something different. And it makes me wonder, are we normally just really like thorough in the things that we're sharing on the podcast? Or I was surprised by the amount of feedback and excellent feedback that people gave me. But uh, I wonder why we don't get that kind of feedback more often. I can't imagine we're right that often. That doesn't seem true. (laughs) Oh, come on. Have faith in us. I do. I, this thing's hard that we do when we're talking on the internet and the idea that people on the internet don't have better ideas. Uh, this was a perfect example of the internet doing that thing that it can do, which is people positively, collaboratively giving feedback. But yeah, I'm just sort of surprised it doesn't happen more. Yeah, I'm with you. I I think this is a great example where we just struck a chord with folks where they were listening to the problem that you were looking to solve and they had some great ideas. I was really excited when I saw a couple of those emails start to pour in as people were like, hey, I love the show. I have thoughts. And then they would dive into the idea of how to approach it. And I just get excited when I see people engaging us in return, because that way I just we know that people are listening and that they're engaged and interested. And there's a, a lot of great, smart people out there. And I'm excited that they reached out to share those ideas with us. I am intrigued about the approach that you took. I have two thoughts. One thing that did amuse me is as much as you and I love Postgres and we talk about always pushing as much complexity to the database as possible, that this is one of those areas that we didn't think about. I wonder how we could change the connections at the Postgres layer instead of doing it at the active record. So that was a really nice kind of reset moment. Be like, oh, yeah, that's that's a great idea. And then a moment ago, you said that that's the approach that you went with and you introduced some error handling as well. I'm curious, what's the error handling that you're alluding to? 
Uh, the error handling was specifically if you are using a read-only connection, then if you try to insert any data, you will get a Postgres, it's like a PG read-only or something like that. There's a particular error class that gets raised. And so the way that I configured it was in the config database.yaml file, I have the URL for the production environment. The URL key in that YAML structure is set to be env read-only DB connection, I think I went with, a read-only DB URL, or env database URL, which is the normal one. So if I do have this environment variable set, then it's basically putting the app into read-only mode, and that will be the connection that's used for everything. Otherwise, it falls back to the normal behavior. It's just making the normal behavior more explicit. And then in, I forget where I actually implemented it. I think I did it at the controller level. I did a rescue from that particular error, but only if that environment variable was set. So basically, when I'm in read-only mode, then aggressively catch this particular exception, the read-only exception, and in that case, render a JSON error message. That was one of the key things that I wanted because the the mobile clients that I'm working with all expect JSON, and if I were the normal like Heroku maintenance on, that will spit out an HTML page of maintenance to them, and they don't like that. They try and parse that HTML as JSON, and it does not go well for anyone. So I was able to sort of build my own fake maintenance mode, turn it on with this environment variable, turn it off with it. So yeah, it was really just about catching that one particular exception. That that was the nice thing is by choking it down to that one point and using the read-only connection, it did simple, like I didn't have to think about all the different places. Uh, and it's like you said, it's interesting that I didn't go there first because that is sort of a theme in a lot of the ways that I think about stuff is can I push this down to the database because I trust it more than I trust basically any other layer of the application. And what's interesting to me is everything I read on the internet started to point me to Rails solutions to this. And the thing that I ended up implementing and the thing that multiple people in our audience have now been like, oh, you should try this, wasn't the first response, like when I did a Google search. So it makes me think that there's a blog post that should exist out there that says, hey, here's the thing. Yeah, I I know I have to write it. I I know what I have to do. (laughs) I'm clapping for the people who can't see. (laughs) Uh, But there's, there's extra small subtleties, like the nature of how to capture the error. And then the other thing that I would want to do is to move all scheduler runs to enqueue a job because then as part of this maintenance mode i can dial down the workers to zero and all we're doing is enqueuing jobs we're never actually going to try and do that work because it's weirder for those to error out it still works fine because they're i think going to pick up the same environment variable i did a quick scan of the the scheduler runs that were potentially going to run i was like nah if we mess a couple of those it'll be fine or if like if i lose the data if they happen to run, a lot of them are like catching statistics sort of things, background jobs of that nature. And so if I lost some of that data when doing the transition between the old database and the new one, that's fine. I could just recalculate it later. Yeah, I feel like a, a quick blog post that summarizes those different pieces would be useful because, I don't know, I, I tried a bunch of other worse ideas for a couple hours first. And a bunch of people on the internet definitely all had this idea. So I want to just make that the number one idea for this because it, it really did work quite well. And it was a much, much better experience for end users of the application than the default maintenance mode would have been. This is the heart of programming. We try a bunch of worse ideas until we stumble upon a better one. And then if we're a really good citizen, we write a blog post about it (laughs) to help out the next person. Something like that. All I have to do is just promise that I'm going to write a blog post when I'm on this podcast. And then I've locked myself in. So now I have I've set like a two week timer on myself that I have to write this blog post. But luckily, it should be short. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be fairly short. That's a good point, too, about scaling down the workers. So that way you don't have those errors also just adding extra noise 
noise as you're going through maintenance mode, then that takes a little bit of time, right? Like that's something that you would want to start depending on how many jobs you have running that you'd want to start a couple hours before you're about to go into the scheduled maintenance mode to make sure that the queue is actually pretty low. Like, are you trying to get it to a point that it's empty or you just basically didn't want to like pull any work off of the queues? Yeah, it was the latter. Uh, I'm fine with enqueuing jobs throughout this period. And I'm fine because it's you can't actually control the Heroku scheduler the way I would want. Like I would love a global on off switch for Heroku scheduler, but that's not an option. The only thing I could do was delete all of the scheduler configuration. So like run the stats calculation hourly, I would have to delete that and all of the others and then reproduce them after the fact if I wanted to like disable all scheduler runs. So instead, if all they do is enqueue a job, and then sidekick is the thing that would actually do the work. If I dial down the workers, then I'm fine. And it's fine to have the queue build up during that time in my mind, as long as nobody's actually trying to do work. Cool. Yeah, all of that sounds good. But yeah, so that was my adventure. Uh, it went well. I'm very grateful to all of the kind folks in the audience who shared uh, that tidbit with me. And uh, hopefully I can pay it forward for other folks on the internet with a similar question. But um, yeah, that's what's up with me. What's uh, What's been going on in your world? Well, I have a bit of personal news that I'm going to share. It's not new news for you, uh, but for everybody else who just may be interested. But I am moving and I'm moving to South Carolina. I'm moving in pretty soon, uh, like a week and a half, uh, something like that. So life is all about finding boxes right now and putting our stuff into boxes. But as you know, and some other people know, my dad's been through a number of health scares this year. So we've decided it's that time to go ahead and transition transition and leave Boston and move to South Carolina, which is just a big deal. Like I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm also grieving a little bit too, because I've been in Boston for seven years. So it feels like a, a big deal to leave and leave all my friends. The great news is that I'm sticking with Thoughtbot. I'll be a remote employee uh, with Thoughtbot, which I'm excited for, which also won't change for a while because we don't plan on having people back in the studios for quite some time. So there will be a nice transition period where life will still just be the way it is now where I'm working from home, but I'll be working in a different state from home. So yeah, that's a, a bit of personal news, something that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it's very exciting. It'll uh, be quite the adventure and got a new space to explore. And I can see the boxes over your shoulder in the video as we're chatting. Uh, I think it'll add, you know, like three milliseconds of latency to our normal conversations, which I think we can work around that. That should be fine. Uh, I actually don't know how light works on these distances. So <laughs> Uh, something I'm interested in, and you'll have to keep me honest, is I'm wondering if my southern accent is going to increase. I'm so excited. <laughs> and I imagine the answer has to be yes, because I'm going to be in South Carolina. I'm going to pick up on it. So that's going to be fun. We'll see which of my words start to suddenly incorporate more of a southern draw. Fantastic. I cannot wait. I will actually probably not comment on it because if I do, then you might be like, oh, no, okay, let me let me ratchet that back. But no, no, no. Let's find our truest selves. Now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. One of the greatest challenges we all face is taking in all the information that's available and knowing where to focus. It's the same problem with hiring. With Indeed, you have access to the largest pool of talent and can hire the right people fast. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. 
With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Bike Shed. That's all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. This is the best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash Bike Shed. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. Thank you again to Indeed for sponsoring today's episode. In other news, um, more on the technical side, I have been playing around with some bundler options that I can pass to load specific gyms. So the application that I'm working on, and we talked a little bit last time how I'm working with a new client and they're looking to take individual Rails applications and then merge and combine those applications into one Rails app. And they're looking to do that because right now they're feeling a lot of pain around duplication. So implementing features or maintaining code is duplicated across about three or four different applications. And there's also a tedious workflow of having to maintain all of these apps because they also have another shared dependency where they've extracted a number of that shared logic to a gym. But then each time they update that gym, then that also means they have like 11 other projects in which they then need to update with that gym version. So they're just feeling a bit of pain from having that particular workflow and then also looking for ways to really like collapse that duplication. So they're working on merging those applications into one code base, which has been an adventure. That's not something that I've done before where they've just taken like all different code bases and merged them into one. Uh, There's been a number of fun hurdles around like namespacing and they're also still looking to maintain some division between the apps so that they can deploy specific portions of the app. So it's not just one giant Rails app in a single deploy, but they're looking to maintain the current deployment status that they have now, where if they want to deploy a hotfix or they just want to deploy a change for a particular portion of the app, they can do that. That's also something that's a bit novel to me. So part of my day has been around looking into how to maintain those boundaries inside of one Rails application. And starting with the gym file, that's one area that we've been investing is how do we want to maintain different gyms for those different applications? And the first idea is we could have different gym files, and then we could also have a base gym file that then has a lot of the common gems that are shared across. And then you could have a gym file for each application I don't love that approach just because I don't love trying to extract all the common gems into one area, even though it does help dry it up, which then makes it easier. So if you need to update a common gem or if you need to update a gem that all three or four apps rely on, then you can update it one place. So the other approach that we've gone with is using the group functionality that Bundler provides. So that way you can say for these particular gems, I want them to be loadable for whenever we call for this group. So for today, I've been playing around with how does that also work for tests? So if we want to run tests, but we only want them to run for like a specific environment, then we need to be able to run like that bundle installation process. And Bundler has a nice options flag that you can pass. It's something that I don't know if you've used before. I found that it's not something that I've used mostly because Rails will automatically load the default gems and then also load anything that matches the Rails environment. So I haven't needed to specify that I also want you to include like this specific group or exclude this group. 
But to use this, you can essentially pass like the with or without flag, and then you can provide the name of a group. So let's say if you have a gym file and you have the group of Leroy Jenkins, because that's the mood you're in, and that's my attempt at a gamer reference. So if you have your group of Leroy Jenkins with a couple of gyms in there, then you can call bundle install dash dash with and then pass in Leroy Jenkins. And then when you run bundle install, it's going to include your default, the Rails environment, and then that particular grouping. You can also do this with a without flag as well. So if you want to exclude Leroy Jenkins and you want to load everything else. How uh, could you but, want to exclude Leroy Jenkins? <laughs> that doesn't make uh, you any know, sense I hear, to me. I hear he's a bit of a troublemaker. That's, oh. hmm. that's the word on the street. Hmm. So if you're in a troublesome mood or if you know you want to calm. Always, <laughs> always in a troublesome mood, but... But there's one important gotcha with using these flags. So Bundler will remember the options that you've passed, and then it's going to store those in the config. So if you run with Leroy Jenkins, next time you run Bundle install, Bundler's going to be like, I got you, friend. I remember what you did last time, so I'm going to run that same option. But it's totally surprising if you're not aware of it. So that's one small gotcha. But then Bundler in version 3, uh, which hasn't been released yet, but they are working towards deprecating those flags. So instead of being able to pass in those flags, and then it's going to get set in your config, and there's some magic, and it's going to be applied later, and you don't realize it. Now you'll actually set those explicitly. So you'll call bundle config set without or with Leroy Jenkins. So that way, you actually know that you are setting this in the config. And each time you run bundle install, it's going to pull from that config file, which could still have a bit of surprise if you forget that you've done that. But it seems like a, a nice improvement where at least it's a bit more obvious because you're following the similar pattern of you are explicitly setting something in the config versus you're passing in what feels like an options flag that should only be applied to that one run. It does feel a little bit like that feature is meant to be this machine is a production machine and therefore we should include the production gems or not or this is I guess tests like we run development and tests so that's an example where that kind of falls down but it is an, I, I've never quite heard of what you're describing where, so is this a Rails app that's going to be deployed in different configurations? Because that I find a really interesting concept that I, I've seen in other languages and frameworks, but not in Rails. So I'm intrigued by that. Oh, I'm, I'm also intrigued when you said you've seen that not in Rails, but in other applications. So I'd love to follow up on that one. But to answer your question, yes. So it's a Rails application that will be deployed and then you provide specific environment variables to say I'm deploying this portion of the app or I'm deploying this the other portion of the app. So say if you had like a messaging portion and then if you had, I don't have a good example, but another another option that you could deploy. I guess maybe that's vaguely similar to using the proc file. And so you have, this is my web process and it says bin rails run this thing. And then there's the jobs process and that's going to be run sidekick or run rescue or whatever it is. So it's maybe similar to that. And that's the sort of thing that I'm thinking of in other applications where they have sort of a shared model runtime code, but then different entry points into that app and different ways that they're going to run. That sounds mostly true. I think that is correct. I think what I'm focused on at the moment or the differences are that right now there's a fair amount of branching that's basically if we are in this particular environment, then we load these routes or we load these files or we have access to these models versus if you are in a different environment, then it's scoping down to what that application looks like when it's deployed. So there's a good bit of branching on based which like app group environment that you're setting. I'm honestly still sorting out my feelings as well. On one hand, it is really neat because you can deploy specific changes. So if you have a 
particular part of the code base or application that represents this other app in the world. And that has a quicker product lifecycle and you want to make lots of changes to just that app, but not bother the other apps. That seems really nice. On the other hand, as they are looking to identify and condense a lot of that duplication, as they move that into a shared space, then it's still back into that workflow of where if you make a change to some logic that's in a shared space, that then to propagate those changes to all the different apps, then that means you're now looking at four or five, however many different portions of the code base that you've split up, you're looking into that many number of deploys to then have that change go out, which I understand was one of their concerns that they had with the current setup. So I'm intrigued to see if they'll be okay with that or if they'll change their mind and say, let's just collapse it all into one Rails application. Let's do a single deploy for now. And if we get to a point where like the slug size is too large for deploys, or if there are other issues that we run into, then we'll optimize at that time. But for now, let's focus on identifying the duplication and extracting services as that starts to feel appropriate. So changing gears just a bit, there's a particular topic that I wanted to bring up with you. It's something that I've been reflecting on as I finished my recent client engagement. And we had some really great conversations with the client leadership and also other developers on that team where we discussed the engagement as a whole of how did it go? What are some areas that you really enjoyed and you felt that we provide a great value to the team? What are some other areas where you'd like to see some changes and how we approach our consulting skills and then joining a team? So I've been really Really reflecting on what are the different steps and processes that make teams really enjoy working with consultants versus sort of like, honestly, kind of hating it or fearing it that someone's going to come into their space and they're going to feel less in control or they feel like they've got a combative force instead of a collaborative force that they're working with. So to provide an example, um, one of the areas I've been thinking about is how we look to influence processes. And one of the really important steps that I've learned is that to have any influence with a team, you really need to step back. And this is more from my words, is sort of like put my ego aside and really learn that team's existing processes and understand what works for them. What pain points do they have? What do they love about their process? What do they dislike about their process? Instead of trying to apply what's most comfortable for me, because I know that I have certain processes that I really favor, but not all of those fit really well with other teams. So if I come in too strongly opinionated where I know like this works really well and we should implement this right away, that can make others shrink away and feel like that I'm just there to change something that they really value that they're accustomed to. Uh, So that's one example that I have is just learning that team's culture and what their process is before making those suggestions. One particular example that I have is for like PR reviews and like what is the culture for how teams review each other's PRs? Are they pretty lax about it? Are they overly positive? Are they negative? Uh, I can be a bit thorough when I review PRs, which is something that I recognize that not everybody wants. Some people would like a really like high level, like help me find the big stuff, but please don't nitpick the little stuff. And so that's something that I have shifted with my career here at ThoughtBot over time where I will try to learn their PR style and then adapt to that style. And then over time, if I do have concerns with the style, uh, specifically like if we are shipping bugs or perhaps if there's like a more negative sort of culture around PR review, then start to raise those concerns or suggestions on how we could change. Have you run into similar experiences where you've gone into an engagement or worked with a client with very like strong opinions and then suddenly realized that it was less helpful for that team? I'm almost certain, yes. (laughs) 
because I, I tend to have strong opinions. But I think the way you framed it initially of it's critically important to come in and try and understand existing processes, existing value structures, and, and what do people think is working well? Where do they think the problems are? And try and work in that space and try and, you know, earning trust is always something that we're thinking about as we're coming into groups. And I think it's really problematic to come into a group and be like, okay, I know you told me the performance was like the app slow and whatever, but what I want to do is focus on PR code review style. And everyone's like, we don't think that's a problem. And you're like, no, 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 I think it is though. And now immediately there's like three different ways in which you've mismanaged that relationship and probably started to make some enemies. So it's... I definitely have strong opinions, but uh, particularly when I join teams, I try and be a little bit slower to start suggesting changes. I try and find places that like there's an alignment between what I see and what folks at that organization are seeing. And I start there as a place to like, okay, we're, we're all in agreement that this could be improved. So let's talk about how to go about that, but make sure that we're starting immediately from a place of shared understanding. And then often the next group would be things that the organization has identified, but that I actually don't necessarily agree with. Like an example is I've gone into a number of organizations that were on the precipice of splitting things into microservices because they had a bunch of other things that were going on. And that was their intended solution. And so carefully, uh, purposefully, I try and have the conversation of let's take a step back and talk about what are the actual presenting issues here. What is leading you to believe that a microservice architecture will be a solution to that? And is there any alternative approach that we might be able to take to alleviate some of those issues? And so there's that of trying to like, can we change some of the things that you think are problems into like reframe that? Uh, And then there's the hardest one, which are things that I think are a problem, but they don't think are a problem. Like often PR code review is minimal or almost entirely absent in some organizations, but they also see that as fine. And that is the sort of thing that like, I have never been successful in sort of wagging the finger saying you must do code review, it is important. Because I don't know, maybe it's not to them. I definitely in my heart of hearts believe that it is. But in those cases, I will do my best to watch for situations, problems or bugs that made it out or inconsistencies in the code base or silos of knowledge or all of these different things that code review is a solution for. And I'll become a broken record in a lot of cases where I'm like, eh, just raising my hand one more time. I think code review would be a great solution to this pain that we're feeling. And I try and associate the change that I'm interested in with pain such that then they start to have that same identification. And then I can actually start to try and introduce whatever process changes. But yeah, that was sort of a rambly adventure of a response. But yes, I do have those experiences. (laughs) We're going to take a short break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. All right, so we all know how VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? What you may not have known is that you can also use a VPN to take your TV watching game to the next level. So you can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. For example, you could use ExpressVPN to binge watch Doctor Who on UK Netflix. It's really simple. You fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. ExpressVPN hides your IP address, so it lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries that you could go through. Do you really love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service, including Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast. 
There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, so that includes phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. You can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen, wherever you are. If you visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com forward slash bike shed. And thanks again to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Bike Shed. Yeah, I have a couple of others that we can dive into as well. You touched on a particular one that I think is a really good one to also discuss, where the ability to push back or ask for time to understand more of the problems and gain that context is a really hard thing to do. Because a lot of times for people will hire ThoughtBot or hire consultants, uh, they've spent a lot of time with the problem, they have internalized a lot of context, and they have a solution in mind. And so then when we work with them, we really want to also understand those pain points so we can do our best to provide ideas for you have a solution. That's wonderful. Let's understand more about the solution and explore if there are other solutions that we should look into as well. So that's a really, frankly, hard part of consulting is finding that right balance of where you want to demonstrate value quickly, but then you also want the time or the ability to gain context for then being able to make really thoughtful suggestions for a path forward. One of the other important areas that I've started incorporating into all of the clients that I work with is creating more opportunities for feedback. So a number of times when we'll join teams, they may have their own internal feedback that they have, but we aren't necessarily part of it. And then same for leadership as well, because there's often a divide between the people who hired ThoughtBot and hired consultants versus the people that we collaborate with on a daily basis. And their goals may vary wildly. So it's really helpful to create opportunities to get feedback from both sides to check in with leadership and revisit their goals and then also make sure that you understand their goals and then also check in with the team that you're working with to understand their goals to make sure that you're providing support and value to them as well. So one great strategy is scheduling retros with leadership and then checking and reevaluating with them with goals and then also having retros with your team. That's something that we do more consistently at ThoughtBot where we will have retros with the developers and the product managers that we're working with. But a new skill for me is also seeking that feedback from leadership as well, since those goals between the two teams can vary drastically. And I have found that incredibly helpful to keep me in tune with understanding what are the people who actually brought us on board looking for? And then what is the team that I'm collaborating with on a daily basis? What are they looking for? What are the pain points that they're feeling? That's also a great opportunity to sometimes bubble up concerns to leadership. So if there is a process concern, then I've created this opportunity of where we've started to establish trust with each other. And then it's a two-way street where they can give me feedback and then I can also give some feedback to them as well. How about you? Um, What are your thoughts on creating more opportunities for feedback? That definitely resonates with me. And it's interesting because I I feel like there are parallels across a couple different sort of relationship boundaries where ThoughtBotters often come in and end up being more of a voice for users or for user-centric thinking and design. So we're not just developers, you know, hiding in the weird corners of the annex, clacking away on our very loud keyboards, but ignoring everything else in the world. Like ideally, we're thinking about the users, even though that's not necessarily the core aspect of our work. And similarly, integrating more with product management. I've occasionally gone into organizations where there's an adversarial interaction between product management and engineering. Product management is always coming along with these requirements and they're changing constantly, but engineering is constantly pushing back and saying, we can't do that. That'll take six months. I can't even estimate it because it's impossible to estimate software. And everyone's sort of talking past each other, even though I think there is actually a very shared 
common language that can be had there. And so that's a that's another example. So like interacting with users or thinking about them as one integrating product management and engineering. But then similarly, like you were saying, going up the organization and having whatever upper management means, you know, CTO, VP of engineering or whatever the structure happens to be all the way down to individual team leads or developers on a team. And we're often ones that find those discrepancies. Like, well, someone's saying this, but you're saying something entirely different. And then we can help encourage or facilitate those sort of conversations. And then ideally, like you said, have that be a more continuous process. So like retro within a small team, but really opening up those channels of communication so that different like customer support feels like they're a supported group within the organization and not people who come over and annoy us. And like, again, I've seen very adversarial relationships there where either customer support comes over and apologizes when they show up with a bug. They're like, I'm so sorry, but this user can't log in anymore. I'm like, you shouldn't be sorry. I should be sorry. The user should definitely be able to log in. I'm so sorry that you feel like you need to be sorry when you show up with a bug. But again, there have been historical interactions that led to that. And so trying to untangle that and make sure Everyone's sort of rowing in the same direction and communication and collaboration are you know, improving over time, if anything. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that's one of our superpowers of being a consultant is one, we do get to be new. So we get to ask a bunch of questions and we get to come in with a fresh perspective. So it's not necessarily just for consultants. That would be anybody that's new that's joining your team. They're going to have all those fresh ideas and have lots of great questions. And then the other superpower is the ability to bubble up those concerns. So how you'd mentioned that we're often advocating for our users. I often find that I'm advocating for the team that I'm working with. So if there are pain points that they're feeling either with processes or they just have concerns or they want to ask questions to leadership, but they're feeling uncomfortable being able to ask those questions. We're enough of an outsider that then we get to bring that back to leadership and say, there are people that are looking for advice on this particular path, or they're concerned about this tech debt, but they're really not sure like when they're going to get time to work on it. Like we get to be that voice for developers on that team, in addition to also being helping be the voice for users. And then circling back, because this is something that just occurred to me, one additional item that I found very helpful is understanding how my joining of the team has been communicated to the rest of the company, because that helps me dial up or down as to my approach. So to understand if they are looking for someone to dive in immediately and be able to like increase development velocity, or if they're looking for someone that they would really prefer that I take a few days to understand their process and their philosophies to then make suggestions around where they're feeling some pain, or it may be that they're looking for help with hiring. So understanding which area that they want me to deliver value has been incredibly helpful for me. But it's something that I feel like we often don't have. It's something that when I'll join a team, I have some concept of what they're interested in having worked on, but I don't really know how my presence has been communicated to that team. So even for clients too, like I feel like it helps them get the most value from a consultant when they share that information with the consultant that's joining the team. And then also creating those meetings and those feedback opportunities so that way they can hear more from the consultants and then also be able to give them direct feedback as well if they have any concerns. What would you say I do here? What would you say I do here? What would you say you would like me to do here? (laughs) It's interesting. You're framing that as, as a conversation for the beginning of the interaction, which I definitely feel is important. But I think you're also referencing back to some of the other things that you're saying. The more continuous these sort of conversations can be, the better. And like I've definitely had the experience where I came in and the idea was like features. We just need to be shipping faster. So you are an extra set of boots on the ground. Please go make some code. 
And then slowly it starts to shift. And without having an explicit conversation around it, I may just stay in feature mode. But at some points I've had organizations be like, actually, you know what? We think it might be useful. We've gotten out from under the backlog just a little bit. And now that we've got a little bit of breathing room, maybe you should actually switch to pairing with developers and doing focusing more on code review and standards and things like that rather than just trying to write a bunch of code yourself. And I always find those transition points interesting. But if you don't have that communication channel open and if you're not regularly checking in, then it's easy to miss those sort of inflection points where it might be useful to change the mode. Definitely. I I think you have provided a very nice way to express what I'm trying to get at which is the heart of like creating those cycles so that they are continuous throughout the engagement. Having them at the beginning is wonderful, but then having them throughout the entire time that you are part of that team is incredibly valuable and something that I am always striving to incorporate more. And I realize I'm positioning some of these tips that I've learned more from a consultant perspective, but I really think they're applicable to anyone who's joining a team. I just feel that I have learned a number of these processes that I've enjoyed and found value from because I have joined a number of teams and moved around a good bit. So it has helped ingrained some of the the more valuable ways of collecting feedback and then ensuring that that feedback is consistent and not something that just happens at the beginning and end of an experience with a team. So you framed this conversation, uh, which frankly, I really enjoyed and I got to dial into some of the subtler aspects of the work that we do. But uh, you framed it in terms of conversations that you had sort of offboarding with a client. And so I'm interested, was there anything more constructive or any feedback that, you know, in the like start, stop, continue? Was there anything in the start or stop buckets that were interesting to you or surprised you? Yeah. uh, So a number of the things that I've learned, I often learn the hard way. (laughs) So a number of these bits that I pick up, it's because I've gotten some feedback from somebody. The PR reviews uh, was one very uh, personal example of where folks were like, we really appreciate that you're thorough and that you give all these examples. But it's also okay if there's less of it, just because then people felt like it was tough to get like a code past me. And I don't want people to feel that way. Like I want it to feel very much like I'm, I'm there to help them get their, their code merged in versus as like I'm a blocker for their code to get merged in. I find that one particularly interesting. Like on the one hand, having a little bit more empathy and making sure you're not coming in too hot or being over the top with feedback. But at the same time, the idea that like, oh, these suggestions of ways to improve the code, we actually don't want them, is interesting. Like, I can certainly see there being different coding styles. I've had to lose the let battle at so many different clients. And you know what? Our spec specs are just going to have lets, not the ones I write, but uh, which is actually an interesting sort of <laughs> stick in the ground that I put. But I think there's room for some back and forth, but I think everyone should get to a shared set of standards. And then the code that we're producing should be uniformly held to that standard. And so the idea of like, can you actually just not tell us when there's stuff about the code is interesting. I I don't know if I'm actually even framing it correctly, but I wonder if that's something that you've experienced and how you feel about that. Yeah, I'm I'm with you because there is a deeper conversation there that I'm just touching on sort of like the, the surface of, but I like that you're digging into it because I asked a similar question or that was also my thought process is I'm like, well, I don't want to change my habits too much, or I don't want to change providing suggestions if I do think there's portions of the code that needs to be updated. So I think it was more of a conversation of, 
instead of saying, you know, like, don't comment on this, maybe find other ways to work with that person and collaborate with them. Because if it's someone who is feeling perhaps overwhelmed by comments, so if there's something that they've implemented that totally works and it's tested, and then I have a refactoring of idea of, well, what if we extracted this into a query object or something like that, then that may be a good opportunity where I can add that comment to the PR, but then also say, if you'd like to pair on this, I'd be more than happy to do so, which is something that I normally do, but it's something that they were interested in me being a little more forthcoming and maybe starting out that conversation with like, hey, like I'd really be happy to pair on this here, sort of like the ideas that I'm thinking about and then go from there. There's also certain patterns that teams may just not include in their code base. So if I'm suggesting implementing a particular pattern that they're not familiar with, then they may want more time to bring it up with the team as a whole to say, hey, like there's this idea, let's talk about it more as a group versus introducing it now. And then other people aren't really sure when and when not to use this pattern. So that was more like the nuance of that conversation was, you know, don't stop commenting uh, your opinions on stuff, but also make sure that I'm offering lots of support to that person or to the people that I'm reaching out to. So I do think, as you mentioned, there is a really important balance of where you are looking for constructive technical feedback. And then some of the other stuff like style and things like we don't want to get bogged down in and preferably we'd rather like outsource to some other tool to manage that for us. So that was the, the balance in that conversation. So circling back to your broader question, yeah, a lot of these things that I have learned have come from more constructive feedback. And then I'm always looking for ways to acquire that feedback earlier in the engagement versus waiting a couple months later when I could have done something to help course correct much earlier in the process. It's interesting. When I asked the question, I assumed that the things we had talked about already were the like, this is going well. And then there was a separate list of not as good. But I really like that you framed any constructive criticism and you sort of turned it around and turned it into the how can I be more proactive moving forward to the point that I didn't even know that that was what we were doing here. So uh, cool, good work. (laughs) Way to be an example. Well, thanks. I think one of the reasons I've been able to make this so positive is frankly, because we've had a lot of those opportunities to have feedback early on. So then as we were meeting with leadership or with other developers, then we had that context. So when we got to like the end of the year engagement, and then we had this conversation, a lot of it had already been discussed much earlier. So it's made it for a very positive experience. And I'm always looking for tips that I've learned from my current experiences that I can carry forward to my next experience or my next engagement. But on that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or review in iTunes as it helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.